We're turning in our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke this morning. I'd invite you to turn there if you have a Bible with you. If you don't, you're welcome to read in the screen behind. If you came this morning and you don't have a Bible at all, either here or at home, you're welcome to catch me after the service. We have a supply that we can give to you. Uh, You'll also see some people walking around with name tags, and those folks would be really good people to ask those questions uh, to We're in John chapter 7. I'll be reading verse 53 and then through verse 11 of chapter 8. Hear the word of God. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. If you have your Bibles with you, you'll note that above this text, if you're using the ESV, there are, in capital letters, the words, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through verse 811. I want to explain this to you before we go to the text because it gives me the opportunity to talk to you about how we got the Bible and whether you can believe the words that we read are, in fact, the words of God. The first thing I want to say about this notation the Scriptures is that it is relatively rare We don't read this very often, but it does reflect how we have received the Bible. You may know the autographa, the original original gospels and letters of the New Testament no longer exist. Instead, we have copies of them. There are about 25,000 copies of the New Testament that lie behind the edition of the Bible that we read from this morning. There are about 6,000 of these that are Greek texts, that is, in the language in which the original was written. The other remaining number of texts are those that are early translation of these Greek texts. The earliest of the Greek texts were copied about 100 years or so after the originals. In other words, they were very close to the originals. Among all of those 6,000 Greek manuscripts, imagine even the 300 or so people in this building all trying to say the same thing. You know how badly that goes so quickly if you've ever played telephone? Among these 6,000 Greek manuscripts, there's 85% agreement among all of them at any given point. It's okay if you're surprised by that. It's truly amazing. 
And if you take the readings that have the most support, there's a much, much higher degree of agreement. I believe it's true that there are less than, hear this, 1% of all New Testament words about which there is a question. If you compare that to other documents that were written about this time in history, you'll notice this is far greater in terms of agreement and number of manuscripts. Now, in particular, when we look at these verses, the earliest manuscripts of the book of John do not include this section in this place. The second thing, however, I want you to understand is that this account is found in other places in the gospel manuscripts. I don't often quote from scholars when I preach, but I'm going to this morning. D.A. Carson, who I take to be one of the eminent New Testament evangelical scholars, says, quote, there is little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. So, even if we're not sure where it belongs in the Gospels, I can say with full confidence it belongs somewhere. And so I want you to be confident this morning that what we're reading, even though it has this notation in the ESV, it's a helpful notation. It should be there. We are, in fact, reading what is part of the Scripture record. It's real history in real time. It is spirit-given even though I cannot tell you for sure that this is precisely the place it should be placed, it should be put in the Gospel of John. In other words, we're not sure where, even though we're sure it is. So, with that said, I want to preach it to you this morning as inspired Scripture that captures real history. You might think of it as an addendum to the Gospel of John, perhaps not occurring in history at this point, but occurring at some point. Is that enough said about this? Let's go to the story. The first thing I want to tell you about these verses is that these verses are not about adultery. I'm not saying they don't touch on adultery, that the seventh commandment doesn't matter in our understanding about these verses. The seventh commandment is true. It says, you shall not commit adultery. We should not have sexual relations with those we're not married to. That's true. I'm affirming that. I'm just saying that's not the primary point of this section. In order to tell you why that's true, I've got to walk through this passage with you. It made it sound like that's a little bit of a chore. I'm glad to do that with you. When this section opens, we read about a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. I don't know when we read that, phrase, that verse, if that struck you as strange, I want to suggest to you it should. First, adultery is not something that just happens, as one author has said, in splendid isolation. She was caught in the act of adultery with another person, we can presume a man, but we do not find anything about that man here. Did he get away? Did they ignore him? Was this just a setup using this woman in order to try Jesus. We find out in the following section, when we read the question, the scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus in verses 4 and 5. It turns out, hear this, the interest of these leaders is not, first of all, in the well-being of this woman, 
I could say to you it's not even in what is most pleasing to God. Instead, the point of this setup is to catch Jesus in the squeeze between what they perceived to be this very difficult question according to the Old Testament law and what was allowable in their contemporary situation. Since we're not living in Roman times, I'll explain to you what that means. But first, I want you to note a second thing, why this should strike you as strange, this setup. There's very little said about the woman herself. There's no concern with her relationship with the God who gave the seventh commandment. There's only a focus on what Jesus is going to do with the problem they presented. Look at this problem again in verses 4 and 5. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? What do you think, Jesus? Should we stone her or not? For some background into this question they are raising, sometimes the Pharisees will twist the Old Testament a bit in order for it to suit the question they're asking Jesus. That's not what happens here. In Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 and 24, Moses writes that if a betrothed virgin is un- a virgin is unfaithful to her husband, she should be stoned along with her partner in that sin. In other places in the Old Testament, death is prescribed for unfaithful wives and their partners. But no means is given there. In other words, in this case, these Pharisees could go back to Deuteronomy chapter 22, whether this woman was pre-married or she is now married, and they could rightly ask Jesus, this woman, she has committed adultery, should she be stoned? Now, the problem, of course, is that the Jews were not living under their own authority. They were living under the Roman authorities, and the Roman authorities would not have allowed this. Remember, later on when Jesus is tried, they need the permission of the Roman authorities to put him to death. That would have been true here as well, and the Roman authorities would never have agreed to put someone to death for this kind of sexual sin. And hence the horn of the problems. If Jesus disobeys the law of God and says, no, don't stone her, it proves that Jesus is less than Messiah because he disobeys the Old Testament law. If, on the other hand, he says, no, she should be stoned, he disobeys the law of the Romans, and they would exact some kind of punishment, perhaps even death. Either way, the Pharisees say, we win. Either Jesus is shown not to be the Messiah or he ends up likely put to death by the Romans. In this case, the only problem is this woman who is being used in order to make their point. Perhaps you feel the pain of the pinch here that the Pharisees are laying before Jesus. It is a real problem. What should Jesus do? Before we read the following verses to discover what Jesus did, I want to reframe the problem for you a bit. You know, sometimes the answer that we come to is assumed by the way the problem is posed. Instead of looking at the problem the way the Pharisees looked at it, either you're going to obey God or the Romans, 
and the one that you disobey will demonstrate or perhaps put to death put you to death i want you to think about the problem this way do the pharisees really love the law of god It is assumed in this passage and other passages that have come before, the Pharisees really loved the law of God. They loved it so much. It was their love of the law of God that moved them to question whether Jesus was the Messiah. Perhaps everything you've ever thought about with the Pharisees would lead you to say, of course they loved the law of God. They were experts in the law of God. They not only loved the law, they wrote long commentaries on the law, they debated the law. It was what they spent their time considering. You might even say they loved the law of God too much. They needed to relax their love of the law a little. If that's your view of the Pharisees and their love of the law, I want you to reconsider for just a moment. I think their history with Jesus, and especially this passage, would tell us In fact, the opposite. They did not love the law of God enough. They should have loved it the way the psalmist loves it in Psalm 119, verse 97. He says, you might know this, Oh, I love the law. It is my meditation all the day. Or I can even say they should have loved it as much as Jesus did. In John 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. I think it's more accurate to say the Pharisees loved their use of the law. The way they could use it, hear this, for their own purposes. In this case, to try to trip up Jesus, to condemn this woman, to justify themselves. That's what they really loved, their use of the law of God. But what if they had understood instead that they were not really loving the law? If they had, they may have instead of what they did see, they would have seen Jesus as a true fulfillment of the law of God. When God says in Hosea 6 verse 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, if they they love the law, they would have seen in Jesus the embodiment of, of mercy. And when they looked at this woman, their real love for the law would have led them to have real love for this woman and not a perverted joy that they had caught this woman or set this woman up in this awful situation in order to try to trap Jesus. They would have had no joy in the misuse of others to show their hatred of Jesus. They would have understood that even in the Old Testament law where stoning was commanded for adultery, it was not because of hatred for people. Listen to this. It was for God's design to fashion an Israelite nation that would embody the holiness of God and the nations would be drawn to the Israelites and they would find hope and they would find a future in the coming Messiah. It wasn't because God simply hated adulterers that he commanded they, put to, they be put to death. It was because he loved the nations that he wanted to guard the holiness of Israel. Now let me say it again. This passage is not, first of all, about adultery. Adultery is wrong. But adultery is only the occasion for the Pharisees to lay their trap. What this passage is about 
is the ability for us, of us, to say that we love the law. No, we really, really, really love the law of God, but then to use it to justify ourselves because we really, can I say it strongly enough, we love the law and we love ourselves more than Jesus, and our love of the law leads us to hate Jesus. I wonder if that has caught your attention. That a love of the law of God in order to justify ourselves leads to a hatred of Jesus. Because if you've heard nothing else in this series of sermons about the interaction between Jesus and these religious leaders where they have tried to trip up Jesus again to demonstrate conclusively he is not the Messiah, that desire to discredit Jesus, does not come from a love for him. It is not because they thought Jesus were trying to help you with a few things you don't understand. If only you could figure out these things with us. Let us come alongside you so you can understand the law rightly, so we can really figure out whether you are the Messiah. That was not their motivation. Their motivation was, Jesus, you're a threat to my system of thinking. In my system, the law justifies me. I am the person who uses the law in order to demonstrate to others they should be like me. Jesus comes, bring mercy, and they say, you cannot be the Messiah. No way. In the previous section that we read a couple of weeks ago, they have now schemed to put Jesus to death. In addition to all that means about the misuse of the law, the motivation being wrong. Not only does it lead to a hatred of Jesus, but it also leads to a misuse of others. Could you think through that for just a moment? That is quite a mindful. But I'm hoping that you will see how easily that comes to the human heart. If you use the law to justify yourself, think of all the ways we do that. Why don't you just be like a, a parent like I am? If you parented more like I did, your kid would be better behaved. What's wrong with you? If you worked as hard as I did, if you just applied yourself, if you tried harder, you could be successful. Why aren't you trying harder? Why don't you become more like me? Why don't you become involved more? Why do you see so lazy in life? Why don't you become more like I am? You can think of all the ways that you try to use the law of God that calls us to work hard, to be good parents, to be involved in the life of the church. The law of God calls us to all that. But when we use the good law in order to try to justify ourselves, in order to elevate ourselves above others, what you end up doing is hating the message of Jesus. You will hate him because of his mercy. And you will inevitably come to misuse others. Again, I tell you this morning, this passage is not about adultery first and foremost. It is about loving the law, but hating Jesus. And in that hatred, misusing others in order to suit your purposes. If this passage is not about adultery... What I would tell you this morning is that it is about the mercy of Jesus. 
Let me emphasize that with the rest of this passage. Jesus does not respond as the Pharisees anticipated. He begins writing in the dirt. If you want to read a lot of interesting Old Testament rabbinical speculation on what he was writing, just look at the passages that talk about this. We have no idea what he was writing. At the most we can say is that he was not rushing to judgment. But still they continue to badger him with the question, what are you going to do, Jesus? Should we stone you right here, right now? Is that what we should do? Should we, uh, should we follow the law of Moses? Doesn't the Messiah want to follow the law of Moses, Jesus? Where are the stones? Come on, let's do it. You're not scared of the Romans, are you? If you say you're the Messiah, there should be no reason for fear. Come on, let's do the deed. But Jesus will not answer them. Instead, he asks the question that hangs above the passage. For those who love the law but hate Jesus, he says to them, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. This also is a direct reference to the Old Testament in chapters 13 and 17 of Deuteronomy, the Pharisees' favorite book, where the law says that witnesses to the crime are responsible to execute the sentence, and they cannot be participants in exacting the sentence if they're participants in the crime themselves. (laughs) Now look at the way that Jesus points to the heart of those who are bringing the accusation. Jesus is not telling the Pharisees they have to be perfect in every way. If they've ever sinned in any respect, they could not participate in this judgment. No, he was saying, in order to judge this woman, these Pharisees also had to be free from lust, in this case and every case. And he is saying to these men, how many of you can righteously say, I've never lusted? If you've never lusted, here's what you can do. Pick up the stones and stone this woman. And we read in this passage, they all disappear. One after the other until they're all gone. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Is placing these Pharisees below the law, under the law, subject to it. Not in a position to use the law for their own ends, but to reveal their hearts. It would be appropriate for me to ask you this morning to consider your own hearts in regard to the law of God. I know some of us take a great deal of satisfaction in loving the law of God. I love the law of God. I love the commandments of God. You all should follow the commandments like I follow the commandments. It's human nature to want to do that. Have you never driven a car down the street and saw someone do something stupid and say to yourself, well, if only they drove as well as I did? Have you ever watched someone parenting their child in the grocery store? I saw this just yesterday. Someone parenting their child. And in my mind, I'm like, well, you know, if only they were as good a parent as I am. Have you never looked at someone who's struggling in their work and said in your own mind, if only they would work harder, if they had applied themselves, if only they were more like me, they wouldn't be struggling in this way. Why can't they be more like me? Again, I say to you, oh, I love the law of God. It is my meditation day and night. 
but I am using the law to justify myself rather than point someone to the God who is. What does what we recognize in others, what does what we pick out in others reveal about our own hearts? Or if I can even ask a more sensitive question, when you see the mercy of Christ applied to others, does that ever flash through your mind? That's too easy. Shouldn't they have to work for that a little bit? Why should someone who has lived a life of sin just all of a sudden get off scot-free? Oh my word, some of you know I did prison ministry for more than five years before I came here. You know how, how often I heard that from people? These are terrible people. How in the world could the grace of Jesus Christ apply to a murderer, to a rapist, someone who's done terrible things to children? How could the mercy of Christ be applied to them? When you see your own heart in the light of the law of God, you're not moved, first of all, to judgment of others. You're moved to love the mercy of Jesus. And you're moved to love the mercy of Jesus because you know that mercy has first of all been given to you. And the Pharisees knew that. They knew what Jesus was saying was true. That if you humble yourself under the law of God, you end up looking to Jesus and not hating him. And for that reason, they all disappeared until it was only left until it was only left with Jesus and this woman. It is true, Jesus does not ignore her sin. He tells her to go and turn away from her sin. It's a very easy application of this passage to tell you as well, if you're living in sexual sin, turn away from it. It does not please the Lord. But even more than that, Jesus offers her what the Pharisees would not, that is real mercy. Real and deep and tender grace. To end this morning, I simply want to note to you throughout this sermon, I've placed you in the position of the Pharisees. Have you noticed that? There's good reason for that. It's often the place that we struggle to be. Do you love the law of God in a self-justifying way? Do you pride yourself on the goodness of your life in a way that others have not yet attained? And does it lead you to despise the mercy of Christ? And does it lead you to the misuse of others? But as I end this morning, I want you to think about yourself not as the Pharisees, but as the woman. Are you helpless? Have you also been caught in your sin? Do you see that you deserve judgment for what you have done? Let me hold before you this morning in the most clear and powerful terms, here is Jesus. And here's his mercy for you. He speaks mercy, but more than that, he gives himself to you. There's no sin greater than his mercy. If you are stuck in your sin, turn away from it and flee to Jesus. 
his mercy is greater than the sin to which you say in your mind, but there can be no mercy greater than this. There is greater mercy, and there's greater mercy for you. So if it helps you when you go home, remember this. It's mercy over stones. That's the real story. Not self-justification in light of the law, but the incredible mercy of Jesus Christ over the use of the law that will lead us to despise Jesus and to misuse others. This is God's Word. Would you join me in praying? Our Heavenly Father, I feel the old, the the same sting of your word that many of us might feel this morning. But I also feel the great joy of knowing the mercy of Jesus Christ. Lord, we might look in every place and in all kinds of ways for things to alleviate the struggle of our hearts. We might believe that we just need more. We need the approval of others. There's something we've always been looking for, but we've never quite found it yet. And once we do, everything will fall into place. We'll find that peace. And Lord, I am certain that when this woman who was caught in this awful moral situation, who did rebel against you in the way that she lived, when she walked away from Jesus, she had experienced mercy that we can still know today. Lord, we do not sanction the breaking of your law. In fact, it is because we love your law. It is because we love the way your law transforms us into a people who are evidence of the kingdom of Christ as it has invaded this world. It is because of your law that we ask that you would as well give us a motivation not to use your law in a way that harms others, but in a way that leads us to appreciate the mercy that your Son offers us. Lord, would you hear us, and would you work powerfully in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.